Hi, this is John Breyer with Mainly Matters, and today our guest is Maine artist and sculptor David Smuss. Dave, thanks very much for coming on the show today. Thank you, John. I appreciate being here. Yeah, no, our, our pleasure. Um, and I, by the way, I am, I'm out in my screen house right now here overlooking McGraw Pond while we do this podcast, so if you hear the occasional rain or uh, acorns hitting the metal roof above me, that's that's what that is. So I guess that's part of being in Maine in the summer. But Dave... It's great. It's add to the atmosphere here. Exactly. So Dave, you're an artist. Um, can you can you? What is the type of art you make called? And can you give our audience a brief overview of how you do what you do? I know you're a sculpture sculptor. Um, you make beautiful sculpt, sculptures out of metal and bronze and that sort of thing. But you know, just in general, what what is it that you do, and what goes into making one of your pieces of art? Sure. Uh- you know, uh, that's the medium, John. You mentioned it's, it's bronze. It's, uh, uh, what I cast in is uh, the traditional method of lost wax bronze casting, which is actually uh, very, very old and it's been around a long time. And uh, this, I mean, you can do all kinds of things in it, but my type of art, I, the subject matter-wise, is based around wildlife, which has always been a big thing for me since I was a kid. And also pet portraiture is another thing that I like to do and have done quite a bit of in the past few years as well. Now, the process uh, is another thing. It's a little long-winded to go through it verbally, but I can give you a real quick condensation of it. And if you ever get a chance to go to a foundry and actually see it done, it kind of comes together a lot more clearly to actually see the separate parts of it going on. And it's very, very lengthy, and it requires a lot of skilled artisans to accomplish it. You can take part or do any any one of those parts of the process yourself if you have proximity to a foundry, but you can also hire those steps out and get full-service work after you create an original to get it into bronze. So what happens is I start with a concept, and you know, that might require uh, a lot of personal study, depending on how, how well you know the subject matter. And some, sometimes if it's a portrait, say it's a dog, uh, an individual dog or something, I want to go meet the dog, photograph him, measure him, uh, talk to the owner about his personality and these sorts of things. If it's a wildlife subject matter, I've got quite a background in that, so, you know, I think one of the best, the most important things about it is just knowing what you want to come up with for a finished product, and that gives you a pretty good clear path of getting there. So, I sculpt the original in clay or wax, usually clay, and it's constructed around an armature made out of, of wood and aluminum wire, which it gives, uh, gives support to the original model, but... It also gives you, a, you, you can use measurements or whatever your personal style is to use that as a guideline for laying on the clay accurately, too. But when you're finished with the original sculpture, you've got to get, there's kind of like two molds in the whole process. And the first one, over your direct clay model, is made out of rubber and plaster. The rubber is kind of like a flexible glove-type mold, 
and the plaster is kind of a mother mold that gives it support and strength. And the idea of that is after you get the mold off the clay, it kind of ruins your original clay. So now all you've got is the mold to work. Mm -hmm. But what you're going to do at the foundry usually is pour wax into that rubber mold to reproduce a wax positive that looks exactly like your clay model. But the wax is only three or four millimeters thick. It's hollow, kind of like a chocolate Easter bunny would be. Mm -hmm. Because the idea is to get your finished bronze uh, not solid, especially if it's a big piece, but hollow and three or four millimeters thick. Because something large and that solid in bronze would not only weigh a ridiculous amount and cost a lot because the bronze alloy for our bronze is 95% copper, so okay. it's worth a lot. Sure. And if something that big has to cool and dry, it, it's going to crack in, in large densities, you know? Mm -hmm. So it, it kind of makes the process a little more complicated, but you take that wax, and the short version is that you, you dip it in a silica slurry at the foundry. It, it kind of creates a ceramic shell inside and outside the wax and that can be done in separate pieces if necessary and those are the things that are put in the kiln and you fire up the kiln and you melt and burn the wax out of that ceramic shell as it hardens the shell which is why it's called the lost wax process the wax goes away got it so at that point what you come up with now the original's gone your wax is gone, so you got a negative impression, which is just hollow, thin space inside the silica shell of your original. And you've made some funnels and, and vents and things like that in the wax before you coated it with the shell, thinking ahead to how the wax is going to come out and the bronze is going to have to go in. So you take that empty shell, and you might turn it upside down in a, in a tub of sand or something to be able to accept the poured molten bronze. Mm -hmm. And then the bronze is fired up to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit at the foundry in ingot and in, in a big pot to the point where it looks like lava out of a volcano. It's glowing orange. And two guys actually ingots on each end of this pot with a big iron Dipper, and they pour that bronze into the funnel you created on the silica shell, and it goes inside the shell and fills up all that negative space with soon the shape of your sculpture, and then it's given time to cool. And if all goes well and the shell doesn't crack and it's all done right and everything, uh, after it's cooled, you have to chisel off all that shell material and crack it and take it all away from the cooled bronze. And then a lot of metal work has to be done. Sometimes if it was done in several parts, you've got to have it, have it welded together. And the welding is going to change the color of the metal along the seam lines. And they're going to have to be metal chased with grinders and stuff to match the surface texture that the artist originally put on there. So there's a lot of this type of, and you know, there was chasing work, that's called chasing. And that actually had to be done during the wax stage, too, uh, to prevent, you know, bubbles and things like that from showing through on the final product. So 
it's and then when they're done with that with the metal chasing then you've got a sand glass that will really fine grit so you don't ruin any of the detail but you want to get the metal to a uniform color and texture and then that's when the final stage of what they call the patina which is the coloration and the finish is applied with different chemicals it's not exactly like painting it kind of a layering of chemicals which can be brushed on or sprayed on or splashed on in layers when the metal's at different temperatures to get the metal to oxidize into these different colors that you want for the patina and the finish there's really there's quite an art to every step in the process and that's why you know it creates an individual and handmade product even if you're doing a limited edition of them, every one of them has a subtle difference or more to them. And that's why they're considered the, each one being an original, even though the, the edition is very limited. Wow. Well, well thank you for, for that overview. It's, I, I didn't realize how complex um, the processes are that you do. And, and I think it's, it's, it's interesting to, to hear from from you directly on how much actual effort and work and time and, and just all the different skill sets you have to have to end up with the finished product. Um, I, I know that you, uh, you've stated that you, you, you do, you know, you specialize in, in wildlife bronze sculptures and you're in the right, right place. I, yesterday I, um, was fortunate enough to go to Winter Harbor and, uh, got out on a lobster boat with, Philip Torrey, he actually is a host on Mainly Matters. He he handles our lobster um, section, and he's a, a sixth generation uh, Maine lobsterman. So he took my daughter and I out on on his lobster boat, and just on that one trip uh, out of Winter Harbor, we saw seals, hundreds of seals, uh, which I'd never seen that many on the rocks. Uh, that'd be a great bronze, by the way. I mean, they were just hundreds of these big seals uh, on the rocks as you're coming out of Winter Harbor, and then they would jump in the water as we went by. We saw dolphins. We saw, uh, which which I didn't even know dolphins were this far north. I've seen plenty in Florida, but dolphins were jumping in the bay. We saw osprey, pulled some lobster traps, so lobsters, crabs, some fish came up with it. Uh, blue heron was flying around. Then we, we drove back down to where I am now on McGraw Pond in Oakland, Maine. There was two bunny rabbits hopping around our driveway. Then the loons were out in front. So yeah, Maine is definitely a place, um, you know, full of wildlife. So you've got a lot, a lot of uh, opportunity to see it up close and personal. I'm sure that comes through in your work. But you know, so how long have you been doing this, Dave? Making you know these wildlife bronze sculptures. How long have you been at it? Well, I it, I started in wood, John. So combined with I did wood probably about six years, I'm talking full-time now, uh, before I even got into bronze about 31 years ago, so probably 37 years full-time now, and uh, it happened pretty quick because I just was a hobbyist at it about two years before that. I was down in uh, Tennessee working at an environmental laboratory. My background is, actually, I got a degree in wildlife management from the University of Maine Orono here. And, uh, you know, grew up constantly on the woods and waters in Maine here, and intrigued with wildlife. And so the idea was to become a, a game biologist. But uh, as they say, you know, there's a few forks in the road and you never know what's going to happen. And when I was down there working at this environmental lab in Tennessee, 
my time off, I'd go over and spend in the Smoky Mountains. Uh, I missed Maine and had to get outdoors, so that's where I'd go. And there was quite a bit of that sort of thing over there in, in the woods and on the trails, but I think the added benefit, which took me onto a path I never expected, was going into Gatlinburg, which was just full of these beautiful art galleries and shops. And that's where I got my first taste of really seeing uh, some really great sculptural work in both wood and bronze. And wood was a strong medium down there because you're in the big hardwood belt of the southeast there. Mm-hmm. And there was some fantastic carvings as well, and it was the easiest thing. I, I just got so intrigued with looking at them. I just kind of had this feeling that I, I wanted to do it and could do it, even though I never had. So I kind of had to pick up some tools and feel my way into it and, and look as hard as I could for guys to try and help me and give me a little advice and give up a few secrets and tips because... Back then, you didn't have this incredible world of uh, YouTube videos and even CDs and DVDs that were instructional. And there right. really weren't even any how-to books about it, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So some guys were better at uh, at that sort of thing, and other guys were a little more secretive. But sure. Persistent, and uh, started doing some carving down there. And uh, I had been doing it a couple of years when the lab decided they were going to close, and I was basing my first time on unemployment for six months, and I said to myself, you know something, I'm, I'm just going to carve as hard and as much as I can and study this, and I, I knew I liked it at that point quite a bit, mm-hmm. and uh, see if I can enter one of these craft-type shows uh, and sell some of the stuff, you know? So uh, that was my plan for those six months. And wouldn't you know, I I entered a big show down there as my first time at one ever. There was people from eight different states there selling their wares and there was arts and crafts and so on. And it it ended up being kind of a surprise and somewhat of an auspicious start for me because I ended up winning several of the big awards there and some cash prizes and selling just about everything I had. So well, there you go. <laughs> I joked into doing it for a living because that was such a good first experience. It kind of fooled me into doing it, and I never looked back since. Well, there you go. Right out of the gate, <laughs> you, you took home the big prize. That's, that's, a, that's a good indication, I would say, that uh, you made a good decision have some good skills. What what was the first wildlife bronze that you ever made? Not the wood carvings, but the bronze. What's the first one that you did? Yeah, I I, uh, I got back up to Maine after that because I missed it so much here. And uh, I persisted with the wood for a while. But, you know, I, I discovered that uh, if you wanted to do some serious wood sculpture, mm-hmm. that one of the best things to do was to sculpt it in clay first as a guide to I doing see. it in wood. Okay. But then I and I had been intrigued with these bronzes anyways and found out that clay was the medium that you'd first start sculpting with to create a bronze too. So I I kind of transitioned into that and learned how to mold and cast these uh, bronzes with the help of sort of people that were experienced with that. And so Right around 90, I came out with my first bronze, which was a timber wolf that I titled Exile. 
and I kind of kind of felt, you know, I was putting a little myself into that piece because wolves are such a, mm-hmm. they're a social animal and yet quite individual, like I, I kind of looked at myself as. And it was a little bit symbolic because I felt like doing this art thing was a little bit of a lone wolf type deal, striking off on my own. That was something somewhat non-conventional compared to impressions in my mind of, of the way to stake out a career path, you know? Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah, you have you have personal ties to the to the lone wolf. Um, so speaking of the wolf or in general your your typical bronze sculptures, the ones that you make, is there a standard size um, when you're doing, you know, a, a limited edition type thing i mean how how are they big small medium or do you have a you know how do you determine how big to make it yeah as as you say it's quite a range from little miniatures maybe two or three inches in dimension to some bigger outdoor stuff now life-size stuff but i would say that kind of the average size would be what you call a tabletop sculpture for indoor display mm-hmm. somewhat you know maybe around 16 inches long 12 inches wide 10 inches high something like that mm-hmm. sit on a normal table or pedestal or shelf on most people's houses and i guess that's you know pretty pretty good reason why they that size range is is popular how heavy would something like that be? One of those traditional, you know, tabletop pieces. I think probably about fifteen or twenty pounds. Okay. People find them as, as I mentioned, in in the larger spaces on them, they're hollow. But in the thinner areas where you have a maybe a thin leg or appendage or something sticking out, might be solid there. So they, when a person picks one up, if they never have. They're still impressed with how heavy they are, but they're not solid. They'd be much, much heavier if they were. And they could also, you got to keep in mind, they might be on a walnut base, which is pretty dense, heavy wood, and there might be some granite in between, depending on how you design the base. Sure. So you add granite and walnut, and it really adds up with the bronze. Got it. Well, I, you, you'd mentioned... Um the two to three inch smaller size. I, I know we had talked before before the show uh, a few weeks ago, and you do make some pieces that are smaller and, and that are not uh, limited in addition, but as you'd mentioned earlier, they're all unique in their own way due to the colorization and the different things. So I actually have one in my hand here. Um, I, I ordered one of your, it, it's a puppy dog, or it looks like a puppy, and um, you know, it, it's got some heft to it. It definitely would make a great paperweight, but beautiful piece. I actually bought it because I uh, we have a dog, a, a minpin named Pensy, and it kind of looks like Pensy. So uh, my daughter thinks it is Pensy because it looks a lot like her. So we we've got it, and I've got it in my hand, and it's it's beautiful. Tell me a little about just a little bit about the the pieces that that aren't limited that that you've made and that people can um, can purchase or collect. Yeah, thank you, John. I appreciate that. That that one is solid because, uh, as I mentioned, in those very small formats, you can cast them that way. And uh, even for such a tiny piece, it has a lot of heft to it. Yeah, it's in my hand right now as we're talking, and it, uh, it definitely you know has some heft to it. 
Yeah. So what I did was, uh, you know, I have my usually my collectible uh, higher end art pieces, which are limited editions on my regular website. But what I did was that for these little pieces to give more people an access to something that's a, a lot more affordable and maybe something in a gift format and so on. I made a bunch of little ones like you're talking about, different different uh, designs, a little bit more whimsical than my usual stuff, some of it, and a little bit looser in style, if you will. And uh, I got I opened an Etsy shop, so I'm able to offer those separately from my website uh, in an Etsy shop format, and people can order them directly from that. Excellent. Well, I, I would definitely encourage our listeners to check it out because it's a very unique uh, piece. And and now that we have it here, and I've I've looked at some of your other other pieces that that uh, are this size, you know, I could definitely see how collecting them could become uh, an interesting uh, endeavor and, and and very visually attractive to place around your home or on a shelf or, or that sort of thing. And, and again, my daughter loves it because um, it's just, it's just so lifelike and looks like our dog. So that's great. Thank you. In, in regard to your, um, you know, your larger pieces, the, the tabletops and, and the, um, the limited edition pieces that you make and maybe even some of the commissions that you do, you know, one of so do you, do you sell those mostly in Maine, or is it across the United States, or is there even an international audience for this type of work, or you know, what's your market? Yes, yes, I think yes, all of the above would be the answer, but probably in the order that you just laid it out. I think most of it in Maine, or at least originating here, either through my site or the galleries that I've been involved with over the years, <clears throat> and then of course. Maine with its summer tourism industry, especially between, say, Memorial Day and Columbus Day now, uh, so many people from other parts of the country and the world are coming here that that has resulted in gallery sales going out to those people in those areas over the years. Uh, I've had some 20-plus year gallery relationships that have worked out very well and uh, it, of course there's, there's occasional orders directly to me from the website or other contacts from some of these places as well so yeah it, over this length of time I've got quite a bit of stuff across the United States and some internationally as well going out to places like as far as Australia and um, off the coast places like Luxembourg and mm-hmm. uh, more common foreign European ones like the UK and so on. Well, wow, that's exciting. It must be uh, uh, nice to, to think that you know your work is, is all over the world, really, sitting in people's homes or on display somewhere. So that's, that's great. Um, it does good, yes. And, and it makes you think in, on the broader scale. You know, it's quite a compliment, really, because... Uh, you know, you do think as an artist of uh, the fantastic number of artists and, and talent that there is out there, not only locally, but right. uh, nationwide and then worldwide. And it, and it kind of always encourages you a little, in, in, and, and you can pass off that encouragement to young people starting off at it, because you know, no matter how much of that there there is out there, it's a, it's a good signal. And, 
good proof that there's there's always room for more in that. Uh, thank God for different tastes because uh, no matter who you are or what you're doing, you've got something a little individual to offer in what you do that somebody is going to like a little bit more than the next person maybe. And there's room for everybody, so you shouldn't let that competition or uh, that abundance of scary talent scare you one bit when you're starting off, you know? Sure. Well, that's good good inspiration for some of the budding artists that might be out there listening uh, to this episode. Uh, something kind of special, I, I read about it and, and, and then learned a little bit more about it recently, but you recently were commissioned to do a very special project that involved a great black hawk. And for background, as I understand it, a great black hawk is native to Central and South America, had never really, they'd never been seen as far north as Maine, yet one arrived in Portland, Maine. And um, as, I, as I've researched it, it was the first time a great black hawk was ever seen that far north. And unfortunately, I think eventually the bird um, it succumbed to the weather when, when we had a deep freeze. Um, but, you know, the, the hawk itself touched uh, the people's hearts and, and minds of the community. And uh, I know that you were, you got involved with uh, Deering Oaks Park, uh, a project that they did uh, regarding this great black hawk and a sculpture. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that project and, and what, what, what it was and what it is. Yeah, you, you gave a pretty good overview of what happened there, John. It was uh, it was a, a large occurrence in the birding world. People who are really into that came from all over the country and other places, too, to photograph and just get a, a look at that bird because they keep a life list, and they, they love getting something unusual uh, to add to the list. And uh, it was literally the... Technically, what they said was it was the second time the great black hawk had been spotted in the continental United States. Mm. But what happened was the first time it had ever been spotted was down in Texas, which is much closer, of course, to Central and South America where the bird's native. Right. But this bird was identified to be the same bird and somehow got off course, and that was done by... Uh, some of the feather patterns uh, color-wise and the markings, but also this intriguing uh, strange tail feather on the right end of the tail, the last feather, turned up and frozen in place, healed in place, I would say, at a right angle to all the others, which was a little bizarre, but quite a good identifying characteristic. highly unusual. You wouldn't see that normally. So it was an immature male, and... Uh, Avian Haven got involved when the bird was succumbing to the frostbite. The Friends of Deering Oaks are the people in Portland who take care of the park. And so uh, after the ordeal was over and, and, and the bird hung in through October, November, it found it easy to uh, eat on squirrels and pigeons there and stuff, even though it wasn't a native environment. It was surviving pretty well, but course the main winter yeah. we had a couple of those sleet and snowstorms come in and being from where it was it just couldn't handle the, the cold and that frostbite got up into its feet and its leg and weakened it 
and it was found on the ground, actually, uh, during one of those January snowstorms, I think. Hmm. I think it was January. And, and uh, so they brought it to Avian Haven, which is a great rehab center. They, they take in raptors, but they take in other birds as well. But they just couldn't bring the poor thing around and uh, had to euthanize it. But a lot of people, by this time, there was articles in the paper about it. And as I say, a lot of the birders kind of fell in love with it. And gee, there was a song written about it. And it had been on the news and videos and so on. So uh, the Friends of Daring Oaks and Avian Haven both thought it would be a great idea to create a sculpture. And so they, they put out a call for proposals and called me and uh, ended up accepting my proposal. And so uh, the story went on from there. Wow how how long um, between when the, when the black hawk was um, spotted in Texas to when it was then spotted in Maine? How much time was between those those two sightings? Was it a long time, or was it just a you know few months? Or I think it was a matter of months. Uh, I'm not positive when it was spotted in Texas, but I know it was spotted, it was even here a few months, because mm -hmm. I think, I'm not mistaken, spotted first in Maine, down at Bitterford Pool area, and that was probably October. Got it. Uh, so it worked its way up the coast, kind of disappeared for a while, and I think the next place they saw it was during Oaks, and by then it was November or, or December. I see. So uh, it well, lasted a while. Well, the, the Great Black Hawk sculpture is a tremendous work of art. I've, I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen um, the articles and the, a lot of stories were, were uh, written, uh, written on it and a lot of photographs. So, uh, tremendous work of art. Can you just tell us briefly, you know, what went into making that piece? How long did it take you to finish the project? And I know uh, you can tell our listeners there's, there's, there's more than just the Great Black Hawk in that particular um, work of art. So uh, just give us a little bit of overview of how long it took to make that and uh, some of the unique uh, parts of that uh, piece that are more than just the, the hawk itself, which is obviously the the centerpiece and the focal point. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, uh, the, uh, the main Department of Fisheries and Wildlife got involved be because... Uh, Normally speaking, that's not the type of bird that it would be legal to have in your possession. And, of course, Maine Audubon was involved because it's on top of everything in the way of birds in the state, and that was a big thing, too. So it was kind of decided that uh, they should mount the bird doing taxidermy on it for the Maine State Museum after it passed away. And... Uh, the guy who got the job for that has done, he, he's an avian taxidermy specialist who's done quite a bit of work for the Maine State Museum already, Tom Barabee over in the Poland area, uh, towards Minot there, and uh, very good taxidermist, especially for birds. And the uh, serendipitous thing for me was uh, I was able to contact him and have access to the actual birds before he did any taxidermy on it. So I could literally take uh, quite a few of my own photographs and measurements off the actual bird 
I do pretty extensive measurement charts when I have that kind of access. So it helps in creating a realistic sculpture. And that's what they wanted. They decided they wanted a life-size realistic version of it as a statue in the park. And uh, so I was able to pitch the design to the Portland Public Art Committee, too, because they were going to have a hand in the matter and were thinking of accepting it in, into the Portland Public Art Collection, which eventually did happen. And what my idea was, they were concerned with vandalism, so they didn't want it too close to the ground, and yet, being a life-size bird, uh, the great black hawk is, I'm going to say, probably two-thirds the size of a bald eagle. Mm -hmm. So uh, not huge, maybe a couple of feet from the tip of the beak to the tip of the tail. Mm -hmm. So there, there was a balance of things in the design when you had to come to a, a compromise, uh, whereas they wanted a lot of realistic detail put into it, and it was not going to be larger than life-size sculpture. Uh, you wanted it close enough to be able to see and appreciate that, but you also had to figure out a way. There was quite a bit of vandalism on and off in the park in various places, so we had to keep that in mind, too. So I kind of tested things out and decided we were going to, the best thing to do would be putting it up on a small vertical column of granite, 10 inches on a side, 10 by 10 inches square, mm -hmm. but nine feet high. Okay. Which seemed to be just the right height to be able to, especially when you get out a little bit from the base, you could see all the detail and the identifying characteristics on this individual bird and, and its special adaptations that, you know, uh, like long legs that it used in South America on the ground to run with and stuff like that in the jungle. Uh, you could see all those things and appreciate them at that distance, but this thin column going up just that height with very sharp edges on it would discourage people from climbing it and trying to get up there. And it ended up working out pretty well, I think, as far as the balance of, uh, you know, those factors that we had to take into consideration because you can see it and appreciate the, the detail real well. And we, you know, I sculpted out that identifying characteristic odd tail feather that mm -hmm. kind of stuck out more than the others too and you can see that really well from ground level uh, too and put a little bit of colors into the patina it's not photorealistic color wise most bronzes never are right especially if they're outdoors you don't want to overdo the fancy coloration because that right and then on the level of maintenance it, it fades with the environmental conditions affecting the oxidation of the bronze and so on. Uh, but if you maintain them well, they can keep up pretty well over the years. So uh, that ended up being a pretty good design, and, and the Portland Public Art Committee liked it. And then I, I threw in the idea of uh, what, what really, I think, intrigued them was uh, I wanted to... The, the design, it was so vertical, and the hawk was so up there, and there was so much column between the bird and the ground. I thought, wouldn't it be great to uh, add a little bit of whimsy and maybe something interactive for the children in the park to put one of those little life-size gray squirrels down three or four feet off the ground where the kids could actually see it and uh, discover it and touch it and, and run up to it and stuff like that. 
and also kind of tell the story of how the hawk survived in that park because it really was taking a lot of the gray squirrels in that park to survive on. Sure. And to tell the story without words and be an element of discovery and something that would keep people moving around the piece to be able to enjoy it from all sides. That's something I like to do with virtually all my work, if possible. So they really loved that idea, and it, it kind of worked out really well. I was, I was happy with that. That's outstanding. That's great. So um, it, it is a beautiful piece. I, like I said, I haven't seen it in person, but I have seen the photographs, and I've seen the, the hawk and the squirrel, and it, it, it is uh, Interactive, you know, it's as, as interactive, I guess, as, as some bronze sculptures can be. But definitely, I think adding that squirrel to the mix um, kind of brings the whole thing alive. A very, very special project. Uh, glad we got to learn yeah, a little. Thank you, John. I, I think one of the uh, <laughs> one of the one of the happiest uh, moments for me that kind of gave me a chuckle was uh, not long at all after they unveiled it, which was uh, about a year ago last weekend, actually, I think. Uh, that uh, probably wasn't 10 minutes after they unveiled it that this gentleman was there uh, with a uh, a baby carriage and a, and a really small child, but he had a five- or six-year-old girl there with him, too. Mm -hmm. She ran right up to that squirrel and threw her arms around it like she was never going to let it go. Well, there you go. There you go. That was uh, that was special. I'm glad, glad you got to see that happen, and she was... She was number one, the number one fan of the squirrel. I'm sure there's been others since then. Um, Dave, so as we get towards the end of the show, you, you know, we talked about some of your smaller pieces, uh, that, and you mentioned that people can get them at Etsy. Uh, how, how would they find your Etsy store? What's the best way to uh, go online and, and find some of your work at Etsy, for example? Uh, the Etsy site for the, for the small unlimited edition pieces is... Uh, at www.harmonyhillbronze.etsy.com. Harmony, Harmony Hill Bronze, just three words in one, without spaces. Okay, so harmonyhillbronze.etsy.com. Correct. So probably also if they just go to Etsy and search for Harmony Hill, would it come up that way if they use the search bar? or um, I think it would if, if that's what you're... I think so. It's a, it's a little tricky. It, it's best if you have it and can remember it. You'll you'll go okay. direct. Uh, sometimes the Etsy bar doesn't work quite as good as the Google bar. Gotcha. Experience. Gotcha. Well, I encourage any of our listeners that want to um, see some of the smaller pieces that are you know very affordable and incredibly well made and and highly detailed. Check that out at Etsy. What about, you know, if some of the people that are listening to the show, and we do have people, Dave, that listen from all over the world. Obviously, I think most of the people that listen are from Maine, um, but a lot of the people that listen to the to the show are people that have connections to Maine, might be elsewhere. Um, we do have, you know, tracking statistics, and we can see we've, we've got listeners that listen regularly in Russia, um, Europe, um, some in Latin America, uh, some Canadians all over the United States, um, definitely an international audience. So um, if someone's interested in actually talking with you about commissioning a special one-of-a-kind piece, how would they go about contacting you to start that process and, and start the discussion? 
Well, it, people are always welcome to call me. Um, for one thing, that, that's main area code 207-683-2179. Or uh, they can go to my website using my name. The, the art website is at davidsmuss.com. Uh, last name's a little tricky. It's, it, that's one word, too. David Smuss. The Smuss is S as in Samuel, M as in mother, U. S as in Samuel. So just one word, www.davidsmuss.com. Or if it's easier to remember, they can go to wildlifebronze.com. Oh, okay. And you get my art website with the limited edition. All right. So uh, they can call you. Or you were kind enough to provide your, your, your direct phone number. Hope you don't start getting spam calls. Um, and then they can go to David Smuss, which is... D-A-V-I-D-S-M-U-S.com or uh, wildlifebronze.com. Is that correct? That's right. Thank All right. You, yeah, you know, you're welcome. So uh, as we wrap up, uh, what's on the horizon? Um, you know, I think you have something special brewing, and if you want to take a few minutes to share that with us, we'd be happy to hear about what you, what you have going in the uh, immediate future that might be interesting to our audience. Great, yeah, thanks, John. Uh, just started work on a, on a commission I received from the Poland Springs Preservation Society over there uh, at the Poland Springs Resort in, uh, in Poland. And it's a uh, piece that has a history, whose origin has a history there. It's a, a famous dog named Togo, who's a Sepala Siberian Husky. And uh, Walt Disney actually just came out with a movie of, about him. Well, the, the movie's been out a couple of years. Stars Willem Dafoe, and but it's streaming on Disney Plus right now, and it's a fabulous adventure uh, about a dog uh, who really Time Magazine has named him the most heroic animal in history. Uh, it goes back to 1925 when. They had to make uh, a life-saving run for serum for a diphtheria epidemic that was starting to kill the children in Nome, Alaska. And uh, at the time, the planes weren't real dependable in the winter weather. It was around January. And they had to figure out a way to go 700 miles to where the train could come in with the antitoxin serum for this epidemic. And the only way they could figure to do it was by arranging a series of dog teams. Sled dogs were big back then. They did everything up there. And uh, they, they, they arranged for kind of a relay situation with about 20 different teams. And the most famous runner was uh, Leonard Seppala, who had come from Norway, but spent a lot of his life developing a great reputation in Alaska, winning the Alaska sweepstakes and all, all kinds of big uh, races up there with his dogs. And uh, I could go on, but if you want to learn about Togo, you could read one of the books or watch the Disney movie. It was a fantastic story and quite heroic. The, the gist of it is that all those other dogs had to run only 30 to 50 mile legs, and Togo ran 261 miles with Zephala. Wow. And, uh, the irony and the sad part of the story, and which is part of the reason for the statue, is that the last leg of the 
serum run that came, they called it the Great Race of Mercy, and the dog that led the last team into Nome with the serum got all the credit as being the hero, and his name was Balto. And they've also made a movie out of him, which I think is a CG or, or cartoonish type movie, but they did erect that year, later that year, a big statue of him in Central Park, and he kind of got all the credit. Mm -hmm. And it, there was smaller ones done of Togo later, but it was kind of a push to... Uh, the, the ties to Maine here, which are important, was that after Suffolk kind of retired Togo after that run, he was 12 years old when he made that run, that dog. Oh, my gosh. And uh, Yeah, so he didn't want him overworked or overrun or just giving somebody else to work. So he had a great friend who, who was really into dogs, too, here, a woman named Elizabeth Ricker in Poland Springs, Maine, came down and gave him, uh, put him in her custody. And, and they bred him. They started a breed that's known to this day and coveted called Cephalo-Siberian Huskies. And uh, a man named Jonathan Hayes up in northern Maine uh, ran a tribute run this winter in February, and he went 261 miles with his team of Cephalo-Huskies from Fort Kent down along Moosehead Lake, uh, right into Greenville this winter. Oh, seven nights, I think. He's got a great blog on his uh, mushmain.com site and uh, documents the days and nights they spent dipping into main hunting camps and guiding camps to help them along the way and stuff like that to help raise money and awareness for the statue and the society there. And uh, so, great story, all tied to Maine. And well, that's... It's going to be exciting to do the statue. They're going to put it up... up uh, It'll probably go in, be unveiled next year in 2022 over there at what they call the Main State Building on the Bowen Springs Resort grounds. That's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that with us, Dave. It's, uh, um, it's great to hear, you know, some of the stories you, behind what you're doing. It, it's so much... Uh, it brings so much more, you know, interest and value uh, to the to the mindset of looking at like the black the great black hawk and and now togo and um to understand that there's a lot a lot behind uh what, what goes into the actual sculpture being made and what it represents so very special look forward to learning more about that project and looking looking uh, forward to it being completed and just want to thank you for for being with us today it's been a really good show i've i've learned a lot myself and i think uh it'll be very interesting for our our listeners, so thank you. My pleasure, John. I sure appreciate it. All right. Well, we wish you continued success as you bring uh, wildlife, Maine's wildlife in particular, uh, to the world of, of bronze sculptures. Thank you, David. This is John Breyer with Mainly Matters. We'll be back with a new episode soon. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you.